please welcome to Tamaki Makoto Pip Williams. <laughs> Thank you. Kia ora koutou. And I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional people of this land uh, that I'm visiting. And thank you so much to everybody who's here and for the festival for inviting me. It's, it's a huge pleasure. Kia ora. Thank you. Uh, Pip, as I said in, to the, in, in the introduction, we are returned as readers very happily to Oxford in this, your, your second novel. Uh, the bookbinder in question is a woman called Peggy Jones, a young woman who, who works in the bindery of the Oxford University Press and is told your job is to bind the books, not to read them. How did this book come about? So this book actually came about from my last research trip uh, to Oxford uh, when I was just finalising the draft for Dictionary of Lost Words. I was in the archives of Oxford University Press going through the photographs and the documents um, and, and all of the, and the books that are in that place. And I came across a photograph of women who were folding the large sheets of paper that come off the printing presses, folding them into what's called sections, essentially sections of a book. Uh, and I asked the archivist there about these women, uh, the bindery women. He said these were the bindery girls. They worked on one side of the bindery, and on the other side, known as the men's side, <laughs> is where all the men worked. They did very different things, and he then showed me some film footage of the making of a book in around 1925 at Oxford University Press. It's really beautiful, and you can actually see it online if you look it up, it's on YouTube. Uh, it goes for nearly 20 minutes, but the bit that I was interested in was the women actually folding, so I could see what they were doing. If I slowed it right down, I could copy them. Uh, and learn how to fold those pages. But I also saw a woman gathering sections, and the gathering bench would be piled with sections from a book, and she danced along it, essentially, pulling the sections onto her arm. She's beautifully dressed. She's actually wearing heels. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to remind myself that, essentially, she's working in a factory. Um, she would have done this thousands of times, um, and as beautifully turned out as she looked, I knew that um, if she stopped to read one of the pages that she had gathered onto her arms, she would be reprimanded because it would slow down production. And then I just imagined myself in that situation and how difficult it would be, and I suspect for most of the people here today, how difficult it would be to sort of glance at a line and be intrigued and want to know what happens next, but actually being told you're never allowed to stop and read the books that you're helping to bind. And from that moment, I had my character, Peggy, who is a, an intelligent, a curious, uh, an ambitious young woman who has been told that her job is to bind the books, not read them. Uh, and obviously she's, she's got far greater aspirations than that, uh, Peggy. I wonder, we, we talked about doing a, a reading and, and Pip uh, very graciously said that she would and I wonder if we should do it now by, by way of setting the scene because um, many of you may not have had the chance to read Bookbinder yet. So, so will you read? Thank sure. you. Sure. And this is really early on, so no spoilers, but I suppose it, it sort of demonstrates a little bit of what I said and it's, it's a scene set in the bindery. Uh, 
and so I'll read from here. There's not really much set up. We walked the length of the bindery, and Mrs. Stoddard stopped occasionally to encourage one of the younger girls or to advise on posture if she saw someone slouching. When we got to her office, she picked up a book, newly bound, lettered in gold, so shiny it looked wet. The Oxford Book of English Verse, 1250 to 1900. We printed it almost every year. Has no one written a poem since 1900? I asked. Mrs. Stoddard suppressed a smile. The controller will want to see how the latest print run has turned out. She handed me the book. The walk to his office should relieve your boredom. I held the book to my nose, clean leather and the fading scent of ink and glue. I never tired of it. It was the freshly minted smell of a new idea, an old story, a disturbing rhyme. I knew it would be gone from that book within a month, so I inhaled as if I might absorb whatever was printed on the pages within. I walked back slowly between two long rows of benches piled with flat printed sheets and folded sections. Women and girls were bent to the task of transforming one to the other, and I had been given a moment's reprieve. I started to open the book when a freckly hand covered mine and pushed the book shut. It won't do to have the spine creased, said Mrs. Hogg. Not by the likes of you, Miss Jones. Thank you. Um, I'm sure we're sort of preaching to the choir, to, to the already converted here in terms of love, of love of books, but clearly you have a love and reverence of, of books yourself. Has that always been the case? And, and when did that start for you? Uh, yes, I do have a love and reverence for books, but um, I suppose I should admit now that it has not always been a, um, an easy uh, relationship I suppose. And I've talked about this with the other book because the most uneasy relationship I've ever had with a book was with a dictionary. Um, and that's because I'm dyslexic. <clears throat> and so uh, my, my relationship with books and words, I suppose, had a slow start. I won't say a rocky start because I was never fully uh, aware, I suppose, of the... Um, the challenges of dyslexia until I got to school. But I didn't read early. I wasn't one of those precocious children that could read before school. I have no memory, really, of reading very much at all before I was about eight years old, um, though I'm sure I did. Uh, but the thing I remember most is <clears throat> people constantly telling me to, to go to dictionaries to fix my spelling, which of course was the worst thing you could ever say to somebody with dyslexia because they can't necessarily, they don't necessarily know the second, third and fourth letter of a word, so it's very hard to look up words in dictionaries. Um, but I, I adored reading once I learned to do it. I have never uh, managed to speed it up. I'm a very, very slow reader. Um, but I also, also really loved writing. Um, but I wrote for myself, so it wasn't necessarily judged um, as often as it might have been. And, you know, my parents were fabulous in that they were just 
always, you know, like when children do stick figures and hand them over to their parents and their parents think, oh, this is such a beautiful work of art. Well, my, <laughs> my parents were like that with, with anything that I wrote. They just engaged with the content and not all of the errors. Um, so, yeah, so my relationship with books was, was slow, but then possibly when you approach something slowly, you um, do develop a really deep and meaningful relationship with them. And, and that's what I feel I have. Wonderful. Um, as, as you would have heard uh, in the excerpt there, um, the bookbinder is, is told from, from Peggy's point of view in, in first person. And at, at one point later in the book, uh, one of the librarians, Miss Garnell, is it, uh, she says to Peggy, Sometimes, Peggy, it doesn't matter how a story is told, but sometimes I think it matters a lot. To what extent is the how important in Bookbinder in terms of how you decide to use that voice and whose voice it should be? Yes, I think the how is extremely important. So there's all those things, the what, the who, the where, the why, the how. They're the most important questions, really, in almost everything that we do. Um, and when I think of books, uh, this started with the dictionary, when I thought about the words in a dictionary uh, had to come from books, from books that had been... Words to get into a dictionary had to be written down. Um, and when the, when the Oxford English Dictionary was first being developed, most of the books that had been written had been written by men. Uh, and so in that book, I really explored well, does that mean that the way we define the English language, at least, and I think we could extrapolate this to other languages, is gendered? And, and I believe that it probably has been. Um, but equally, most of the books that were written before a certain period in history were written by men, and not just men, but men with education, men who were literate. Uh, and and also the archives that hold all of the materials that uh, inspire the books that have been written. Those archives have been developed and controlled and maintained mostly by men with an education. And I think this really does influence the kind of information, the kind of knowledge that we are all given, the knowledge that we receive, the knowledge, the bits of information that we have at our uh, disposable, disposal in order to tell new stories or to tell new histories. Uh, and so I was interested in exploring that, in exploring who gets to make knowledge, um, who gets to take knowledge to receive it, and what happens when the making or the taking of knowledge is denied. And so it was really important for me to explore that from a young woman's point of view, uh, and not just any young woman, but a young working-class woman. Um, interestingly, uh, when I was researching this novel, because it is set between the years of World War I, it starts on the first day of World War I in 1914, and it goes just beyond the end of that war. Uh, and uh, I was, yeah, I was just interested in um, the experience of a young woman who stayed home and kept working. Uh, and when I went to the archives, when I went to the history books, it was very difficult to find her 
in those places, in the history books that had been written. So what I did is turn to the art and literature of women during World War I, which was very informative, actually, for the story. But the thing that I must acknowledge is that all of that art and literature was made by middle and upper-class women, not by working-class women, because by their very nature, um, they didn't have time or money to make art and write books that could be published that I could read 100 years later. It's Virginia Woolf's adage, you know, what you need to make art is a room of your own and 700 a year. Women like Peggy <laughs> did not have that. And so I have to, you know, I have to try and understand her experience using other kinds of information. Yeah, uh, one of the, um, the, the texts you mentioned when you, when you go back to the wartime texts and one of them that appears in the book is um, Vera Britton's Testament of, of Youth. It's a World War I memoir. Um, and I was reading about it in The, in the Guardian and Vera Britton's biographer um, said of it, I think what is different about Testament of Youth, what has made it last, is that it does two things simultaneously. It moves and it educates. And I, I wonder if that's your end game too, to, to move and to educate. Uh, my end game is not to educate. Um, I used to be an educator. <laughs> I'm not an educator uh, now. No, my, both of these books have really come out of curiosity. And in both cases, I was struck by something that um, I had come across either in my own reading, I think that's how so many books come about, is through reading. Uh, so the first book was I'd read The Surgeon of Crowthorn and, and understood then how dictionaries were made and various questions were raised. And in this, it was that woman gathering the sections and this question coming into my, my head, I wonder if she ever stops to read the pages, and then it continues, what if she does? And if she wanted to learn, if she wanted to go to Oxford University, Somerville College, this, this women's college that is just across the road from Oxford University Press, literally across the road, uh, could she, would she, what would she need to do to, as a working class woman to get into that university? The answers were there, they were all there for me to find. The answer was no, it would have been almost impossible for her to go to university. And even if she did go, she wouldn't have been allowed to have a degree, right? E exactly. Yeah. So the women that did go to Oxford University uh, during the war years and before, um, because Oxford did accept women from about the, I think it's the 1880s, maybe the late 1870s, and eventually they allowed the women to do degree courses, so exactly the same classes as the men, but they would not let them graduate. They would not give them a degree. Um, and so that didn't happen for quite some time. Uh, and, and so this is, these are women with, of privilege. Uh, so a woman like Peggy who left school at 12 to work in the bindery where her mother had worked and her grandmother had worked, uh, this, this dream that she might have had would have been a pipe dream. Uh, and I, you know, I was really interested in, in just exploring that, really for my own sake. And I'm no different to lots of people, though. So the things that make me curious, the questions that maybe play on my mind, um, 
I suppose, as it turns out, other people are interested in too. What I don't think I necessarily do, and it's certainly not something I aim to do, is answer questions. I just want to explore them. Um, and I hope there's enough nuance in the stories to sort of see those questions from various perspectives. Great. I want, I want to talk to you about research because the amount of research that has clearly gone into to both of these books is, is astounding. And, and for those of us enamoured by books and, and by writing, um, Oxford seems like some sort of mecca. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, so I ask this next question with a huge amount of jealousy. <laughs> How much time did you get to spend in Oxford? Yeah. How many people, I can't actually see you all, but how many people have been to Oxford? So loads of hands. Yeah, so it's a really um, beautiful city, uh, famously not bombed during World War II. The rumour is that Hitler um, had designs on it as a, a base, and in, this is the rumour, and instructed um, that it not be bombed during World War II, but we, we, um, so we all have the benefit of seeing these buildings that are hundreds and hundreds of years old. Um, yes, I, I really love Oxford, um, and I managed to go there uh, twice uh, to do research trips for the first book, and each time I would stay for about a month, and I would, I would live there and get to know, because there's more than just being in the archives and going to the Bodleian Library. Um, it's walking around the streets, and so much of, so much of what I'm writing about from a hundred years ago is still there. So you know, I can touch the stone, I can, I can feel the street under my feet, I can walk along the canal, and imagine what it might have been like to live on a narrow boat. Uh, but I also then have to imagine that it would be a much dirtier place, a much smellier place, that those narrow boats that I'm seeing <laughs> as I walk along the canals um, now have functioning toilets and hot water and showers, but the narrow boat that my characters live in, Peggy and her twin sister Maud, um, it wouldn't have had any running water. It would have had a bucket for a toilet and that bucket would have been emptied into the canal. So you have to be really careful <laughs> not to, you know, to, to try and understand what life would have been like a hundred years ago, but to walk around it is really important. And, and I went back for this book. I wanted to go back in 2021. I was going to go and live there actually for six months to write this book, but of course COVID um, stopped that. And I didn't actually get back until June last year. Uh, even though the borders were open, the um, Oxford University Press was not. So even for scholars and researchers, I couldn't get into the press until, um, I don't think it opened until April or May last year. So as soon as it opened up, I was back there to, to do more research for this book. Fantastic. Uh, we do romanticise the place, don't you? But like, like you say, um, back in those... Is everyone hearing me okay? Yeah. Back, at, back in those days, obviously, it was, it was completely different, and not just uh, in terms of the, the physical area and, and what life was like on the canal boats, but also the, um, the class structure and everything that went with that. And, and you've noted already what's changed physically about the place, but to what extent has that class structure that Peggy bashes up against changed? Look, I'd say it's changed a little, but not a lot. 
Um, so anyone who's been to Oxford has, can probably see the difference between town and gown. So this is this phrase that's been used in Oxford for quite many centuries, I think. Town are the people who live and work in Oxford full time. Um, they've often, their families have been there for generations uh, or not, they just work in Oxford. And gown are the people um, who are associated with the University of Oxford. And since Oxford University was conceived, there has been this division between town and gown. Um, and the history of it is actually really interesting. Uh, and it is still there today. If you go there during term time, you can see the, the, the town, the townspeople and the gown people. They're quite different. Um, I'm sure there's a little bit more interaction, but you know what, maybe not, because gown tend to be a little bit more seasonal. Um, they come and go a little more often. Uh, and, and yet, Oxford is a university town, and so everybody benefits from the university being there. But a hundred years ago, that division was quite stark. And the only time that town and gown would really interact would be in a master-servant situation, because many of the people who lived in Oxford would work at the university as servants, uh, or what were called scouts. And scouts were the people who would um, who would pick up the shoes of the male students that were left outside the door and polish them so, and then put them back so that they had clean shoes in the morning. They'd come and collect the breakfast things. They'd bring them food. They were essentially like butlers. Um, and in many ways, that's the only time they, they would cross paths. But war changes everything. Um, and it changed, and I know this from research, not just from surmising, but it did change the way the upper class thought of the working class. Um, one of the, the, the book is divided into five sections and each section is headed by a text that Peggy and her sister Maud are working on in the press. And those texts are all real. All the books in, in my story are real and they play themselves, if you like. But one of them was the Oxford pamphlets. And the Oxford pamphlets were essentially essays written about all aspects of the war during 1914 and 1915. And in one of them, I came across a line um, that said, I thought we hated each other, but it seems we don't hate each other quite so much as, as I thought. And he was referring to all of these working class men lining up to enlist and to go to Europe and die and bleed for England. And he just was so surprised at how many thousands of men were willing to do this when in his mind he thought that these men hated them, hated the, the rulers, the bosses, uh, the people who had the vote, because we have to remember a lot of working class men couldn't vote at that time either. Um, and it shocked him to know that these people didn't hate them so much, um, which I found a really interesting line. But yeah, but it's still there. There's, a, there's another line I loved, um, possibly from the same section of essays from Sir Walter Raleigh, and he talks about, I'm assuming he was referring to the Germans here, but he, he talks about a nation of men who mistake violence for strength and cunning for wisdom. Yes, like yes, <laughs> yes. So that's, a, yes, another, another essay that Peggy comes across. 
Um, another text that appears in the anatomy, uh, that appears in the book is called The Anatomy of Melancholy, and its author, Robert Burton, um, says that a love of learning and overmuch study is a particular source of woe. Uh, too much learning will make you lonely, women, send you mad and keep you poor. Were you ever at risk of woe <laughs> during your research? I, I, I'm a bit embarrassed to admit that that went in, <laughs> that line went in. I mean, that book was always, well, not always going to be in there, but that book, uh, I came across that book in the archives, um, a, a 16, I think it was a 1678. 1676. Yeah, 1676 edition of that book that I was allowed to hold. Um, and it was incredible. And, and the books that are in there, I have just come across as if Peggy would come across them in her work, I came across them in my work. Um, and so I'd, I'd written a whole section under that, the title of that book. Um, but as I was doing the final edits, and the final edits of the book, you know, the draft has been written, um, and the, you know, all the big structural edits have been done, but there's often, there's often really hard and intense work that happens before it finally goes off to press. And I had, just like I said, it, it took me ages to get back into the archive, so I only went in June, and my my uh, manuscript was sort of due at the publishers at the end of July, August, and so by the time I got back from Oxford, I had a lot of work to do to try and incorporate all of this research that I'd done. And I was working 10-hour days, and I was, I was really, yes, I was feeling quite a lot of woe. <laughs> <laughs> and I was reading just this section in The Anatomy of Melancholy and came across that, that heading for a chapter. And I just, in some ways, it's serendipity. I just thought it just said everything about <laughs> where I was at that moment. <laughs> um, so it was very easy to um, incorporate it, if you like, into, into the actual novel. I hear you, yep. <laughs> uh, you, you were a writer of non-fiction for many years. You were, you were um, a social researcher. Uh, why did you turn to fiction? Uh, yeah, so I was a social scientist for about 20, 25 years um, and published a lot of research papers and, and, um, and co-authored a book called Time Bomb, Work, rest, and play in Australia today. I came up with the work, rest, and play thing, by the way. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I really loved research. And actually, it's one of those things that I have brought over into my fiction because I do love the research. I love being in archives. I love thinking about people's lives. Um, that's that's the kind of research that I did. Uh, but I have always wanted to write creatively. Um, I think uh, the first thing I ever published was a poem in Dolly magazine. Did you have Dolly magazine in New, in New yeah. Zealand as well? So That great literary journal. Oh, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, and so, but that was the first and last thing I published. However, I, I sort of continued to just play with creative writing my whole life, but not do anything with it. Um, not even try to publish anything, I just really did it for my own benefit. But there comes a time, I think, if you have any kind of creative urge, and a lot of children do, and they, I don't know that they so much grow out of it as, you know, they're sort of pushed out of it. 
Um, but if it's something that was really meaningful to you and you abandon it, I think it will come back and start bothering you. And that's what happened with me. Um, the urge to write creatively started to bother me. Um, and when I tried to do it while also working as an academic, I realised I couldn't. Because academic writing is, you know, it's a very intellectual kind of endeavour and it's um, quite hard work, I, I found. And I just didn't have the capacity to um, do both. Uh, and so I had to leave academia, actually, um, in order to explore creative writing. Uh, and that's what I did. Yeah, yeah. And I, I might be stating the obvious here, but, but both of your books, to me, speak to the importance of fiction, I think. Um, the need for fiction in explaining non-fiction to sort of fill in those gaps that history has, has left and the people that history have, have ignored. And that is the power that that fiction can have, isn't it? The ability for made-up stories to tell the truths that are missing in, in historical accounts. Uh, as someone with a background in non-fiction, was that a revelation to you when you started in fiction, or did you always sort of have that understanding? It wasn't a revelation, partly because a lot of the research that I did was on women's experiences of life, you know, I was really interested in how do we live a good life, how do we um, balance work and home and care and education and, and so on. And I often was interested in women's experiences, uh, which weren't necessarily um, in the literature, the research literature, so I already understood that voices were missing. Um, and But when it comes to fiction telling truth, I often think, um, I, I think we agree that, that Fiction, I think the only, the only way people engage with fiction is because they can feel and see the truth in it. Because um, although the events might be made up, um, it's the emotional truth, the relationship truths, the ambition, the anger, the grief, you know. It's because an author has captured the truth of those things that a reader is engaged in it, or that a reader might be able to see themselves in a character or a situation. So it's the truth that I think engages a reader. Um, but when it comes to non-fiction telling a truth, I think that's all non-fiction can ever do. It can tell a fraction of a truth. Mm. So if we look at war um, histories, traditionally war histories have been men's experiences. Um, uh, and in this book, I was really interested, not so much in war, but I was interested in the lives of people who stayed home and worked or who fled war. And these are stories we don't see so much in non-fiction or accounts we don't see so much in non-fiction. Th those people that stayed home, although they're not what the poets wrote about or, or whatever, they are still war heroes, aren't they? And yes, and it's interesting portray. you say it's not what the poets wrote about. In fact, it sometimes was, but the anthologies of war poetry don't include women's poetry on the whole. Um, interestingly, I did come across a really beautiful anthology of women's war poetry, so poetry that was written during the years of the war by women, um, and lo and behold, it filled an entire volume. <laughs> um, and yet, up until maybe the 90s or even 2000s, there hadn't been a single poem from a woman included in anthologies of war poetry. But 
but nearly, but during the war, it was close to half of the poetry published was published by women. So, you know, it's even the choices that we make in curating history that um, matter to the stories we inherit. Um, but again, uh, when I, this, this collection of women's poetry is fabulous, but I looked up all the poets, except the ones that are anonymous, I, I can't locate them, but the rest were all educated middle-class women. Um, so we don't really know the experience of working-class women. Uh, yeah. And mostly those, those poems are still often about men. <laughs> um, so I, was, I really wanted to write about a woman who didn't necessarily have skin in the game. She didn't have a father, brother or lover at the front. Um, and, and to sort of tell the story slant, I think I, I said if anyone came along to the Books That Made Us session that I did a, a few days ago, um, one of the books I talked about was um, Emily Dickinson has written a poem called Tell All the Truth But Tell It Slant. And it's actually a, a sort of philosophy of mine. It was as a researcher, but also as a novelist, to come at the truth from an angle. And in some ways, fiction is an angle, um, but also to tell a story from a different perspective. Um, just sticking with, with, with the war, and, and you know, it looms large in, in your book, as it, as it must, given the time that it's set. Uh, but like you say, that your focus is, is on how the characters that stay behind dealt with everything. But, but we have Tilda, who, who reappears in the bookbinder of Jericho, who's in the Dictionary of Lost Words, for the, those of you who've met her there. And, and Tilda goes off to work as a, as a VAD in, in France. And so we hear about the war from, mm. from Tilda's letters. I wonder if you could just talk to that a little, a little bit in terms of what she was experiencing and, and what that was like, because she was, she was there with all the, the soldiers from Australia and New Zealand. Mm. And in fact, I think she says more than once that she quite fancies the New Zealanders. <laughs> and New Zealanders were her favorite. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Um, so Tilda was, yeah, as you said, she was a character in the first book and she was sort of like a secondary character. She's the sort of woman that books are usually written about because she, um, in the first book she was, a, uh, an, a, she was an actress, she was a suffragette, she was outspoken, she was sexually liberated, um, she was gorgeous. Uh, she's all the, all the things that make an excellent uh, novel or, or, or movie. But I didn't want to write about a woman like Tilda. I wanted to write about a quieter character. But she still fascinated me, and I, in some ways, she's, I suppose, almost a little two-dimensional in that, in that book because of her role in that book as a secondary character. Uh, and so I was really interested in seeing what might have happened to a woman like Tilda when war breaks out. She's older. Um, she, her acting career is sort of drying up a little because she's aging. Uh, she's a little disillusioned with the WSPU, which is Emine Pankhurst's suffragette movement um, for various reasons. And she joins the voluntary aid detachment as a, a nurse, as a sort of assistant nurse, really. And she ends up going to France, to a place called Etap, which was um, the largest military base, uh, British military base in Europe. And when I say large, Etap is a little fishing village in the north of France, um, really quite small. 
Uh, and at any one time, this military base would have had 100,000 people coming through it. It included nearly 20 hospitals from around the Commonwealth. It also included a training ground, a really brutal training regime as well. Um, the training ground was known as the Bull Ring. Um, it had a reputation for brutality um, and, uh, and it was a target at, some, at various times um, during the war as well. Uh, you know, I think often during war they try to separate hospitals from training grounds <laughs> for good reason. Um, but the other thing they sometimes do is put hospitals with training grounds to try and keep them safe, but it doesn't always work. So she goes to ETAP, and in a way she's the letter writer in this book because it's a first-person narrative and my main character, Peggy, who's telling this story or the stories from her perspective, because she never leaves Jericho, you can't, I can't, you can't know much about the war um, through her eyes. And so, as was the case 100 years ago, letters are incredibly important. Um, and Tilda sends letters back from France which give an insight into the war and also into the effects of war on, on a woman who essentially is, is almost at the front of it. Yeah. There's, a, there's a wonderful letter that um, Tilda writes Peggy at one point from France um, about her, uh, they've asked her German friend uh, to help translate some, some poetry um, for them and it is seemingly very romantic, the poetry, but Tilda is incensed by it, a and she says, I told him I'd had my fill of poetry that painted ordinary men as saints for dying worse than ordinary deaths, or getting injuries that meant they'd live worse than ordinary lives. I told him there was nothing noble about dying in a cornfield, it was just a waste, which is, I feel, a, a quite a good point. Uh, but then Hugo responds with a, with a point of his own, and he says, poetry is how we endure the unendurable, sometimes it has to be alive. Are you more with Tilda or Hugo? On that one? So this is, you know, what you were saying before, asking before, do I want to educate? Mm. If I'm wanting to educate anyone, it's myself. Um, and so when I when I write this, something that's um, it's not a it's not like a conscious exercise, but what I'm always trying to do is see the other side. I'm always trying to understand what are the other perspectives around this thing that I'm writing about. So I, you know, I had Tilda's um, perspective, I suppose, for quite some time. And it was only writing the scene that I was able to explore what poetry sometimes might be doing when it is trying to valorize um, something that shouldn't be valorized. Uh, and I suppose the trick is knowing that that is happening and not being sucked into the propaganda that uh, war poetry sometimes is. Mm. Um, and the, the review that I read out at the start from the Sydney Morning Herald sort of touches on this as well. Um, but, uh, you know, novels are at their heart sort of character studies, aren't they? And, and what I love about your books is, is that the characters in them, as you've already mentioned yourself, are, are ordinary in the, in the best sense of, of the word 
will, word, sorry. They're not flashy, they're not too outrageous, and, and like you say, even the more outlandish characters like Tilda are, are still sort of quietly nuanced. Um, Peggy is not just sort of a cliched little poor girl, she, you know, who's good and kind and all of that. She's sort of... Uh, she's sometimes quite unkind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at, she, least, she resents, at least in her head. <laughs> she resents her neurodiverse sister and she re resents her, her sort of richer friend and, and, and all of that. And I wondered if that's, uh, you know, is that a deliberate approach on your behalf or is that just how you as a writer, how your characters just appear on the page? like that? Um, no, I, I, well, it is how they just appear, but uh, I am conscious of making them real rather than two-dimensional. Um, and, and so maybe it says too much about me, but when I was writing Peggy, who is the uh, first-person narrator of the story, um, I think a lot of us have the experience of being a carer. Uh, and and the experience of being a carer is often uh, one of complexity. It's, it includes genuine and heartfelt love, admiration, um, and genuine and heartfelt frustration and anger. And these, you know, all of the emotions are part of being in any kind of a relationship, I think. And what I didn't want to do is turn Peggy into a selfless saint, because I don't think any of us are. But like I said, I might be giving too much away. There's a lot of um, Peggy thinking one thing and then that's not so kind. <laughs> and then doing something kind. Uh, maybe that's just what I'm doing half the time, I don't know. <laughs> I think we all do that. I think we all do that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but it is important to me to try and make them fully fleshed. Um, because again, we were talking about truth in fiction. I don't think it would ring true if, if they weren't like that. Mm. Um, I, I noticed one of the questions, uh, there's sort of a list of possible questions if you're in a book club that you could ask each other at the back of the bookbinder of Jericho, and one of them was, who do you think is the villain in this story? And I was like, yeah, the patriarchy, you know, and I was reading it at my kid's swimming lesson at the time and nearly spat that out loud. <laughs> um, I wonder if, if who or what you see as, as the villain in this it's story. It's interesting. I never see a who as the villain, and I'm not really interested in writing stories about bad men that do bad things to, to you know, individual women. That's not where I want to write. What I am really interested in is how social and cultural structures determine how we live our lives, no matter who we are. Um, and in both of these books, I think that's what I'm exploring. Um, and these structures, let's be honest, have been built often by men, but it is men and women who suffer under them. And so I am interested um, in exploring that and seeing how people, how people uh, are defeated by the social structures social and political structures that they live within, and also how they um, overcome them, how they challenge them, and, and what has to happen for those structures to be uh, brought down. Mm. Fantastic. Uh, we are getting towards question time, um, but, but, but before we do, uh, 
all through both of your books, you've sort of, like you have done with the historical texts and the, and the historical characters, you sort of drop little Easter eggs of, of words through them, these, these delightful um, unknown or unheard of or almost lost or lost words uh, through your books. Uh, my favourite being Stelliferous. Mm. Stelliferous? Stelliferous, I think. Stelliferous yeah. means yeah. star. That's in the, yeah, yeah, that's in this book. Yeah. <laughs> what is your favourite word? Okay, so I, I do have a favourite, but what I might give you first is one that I think is quite funny. Uh, these are both, uh, when I was writing the first book, I did spend a lot of time with the Oxford English Dictionary, which was far more pleasurable than, than it might sound. <laughs> um, and I came across so many words that were already obsolete uh, at the time of being entered into the dictionary. Uh, but one of them you might find quite useful, it's pastinaceous. 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 Yes, pastinaceous. And it means having the character of a parsnip. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure, all of you will be able to find someone in your life who is pastinaceous. So I, that is my gift to you. Um, but my, my absolute favourite word, which I would love to resurrect, is satisdiction. Um, and satisdiction, which was obsolete back in the 1920s already, satisdiction means having said enough. Before I engage in status... Satis... Satis as in satisfied. Yes, satisfied. as in... Yes. Uh, uh, do you have a least favourite word? Yes, housewife. <laughs> Do we have any questions from the audience? Uh, if you would like to, oh, please. Oh, I can see you all. Yeah. This is lovely. <laughs> so there's uh, microphones at the front here, and then I think there's some uh, up on the circle level as well. If any of you do have a question for Pip, please feel free to make your way towards them. Uh, Pip, what's next? For you, are you sticking in Oxford? What's next in your writing life? <laughs> well, I was just at the, the session before with the Booker Prize winners and they were all asked about, you know, when, when are they going to write again? <laughs> they were all trying to, trying to give a timeline, but um, this year is so full of this wonderful stuff, which I didn't get to do with the first book because of COVID. So I'm doing quite a lot of travel this year uh, and talking to people, which is an enormous privilege. And it's also part of the job, um, but it doesn't, it's not very compatible with writing. So this year I'm going to be thinking and jotting ideas down. Um, I, I'm not quite sure what I'll do next, but I, I do have another idea for an Oxford book. Um, which I think will be some time off, a lot of research again. Uh, and I also have an idea for something much more contemporary and closer to home, which I wouldn't mind exploring, so, yeah. Excellent. Have we got any questions? I might have scared everyone off. The question asking... Um... There's one up there, I think. Yeah. Me? Hi. Yeah. Um, I'm really interested in your research in the archives. I was wondering like, what that process was like and how it informed the stories that you told. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, the archives are full of, 
full of things that haven't been touched sometimes for a hundred years. Uh, when I was doing the research for Dictionary of Lost Words, I was given archive boxes full of the slips of paper that people had sent in from all over the world, actually, with um, words and examples of how they'd been used in books. And these, I would, I would pull a bundle of words out and it was still tied with the string that one of, one of those lexicographers that I'd written about had tied around the bundle. Um, and often the paper was quite cheap paper and it would be confetti-like around the edges. And, you know, I would look at the archivist and go, am I allowed to touch these things? Because as soon as I open this string, the paper is a little bit fragile. But I was. Um, and so I... I it, for that book, I got to see words that were never included in the dictionary, but people had written sentences about. Um, you know, an example would be suffragette. So a suffragette was a man who supported the suffragettes, but it never got in the, in the <laughs> dictionary. There were all these really wonderful examples of words. Um, and, and then the other thing I get to see are photographs and personal letters sometimes lots of newspaper clippings. And one of the things that was really interesting with newspaper clippings, so that the clipping that had been cut out from the paper would be about something that was important to Oxford University Press or the dictionary, and it would be that article. But what I always would do is flip it over to see what was on the other side, because it had been literally cut from the newspaper. And I came across the most wonderful advertisements. I came across this fantastic, um, it was like a, um, a, a column that was written by a young woman uh, about being you know, young and modern and having her hair cut and all sorts of wonderful stuff that sort of gave me a sense of what life was like at the time. But the research is a wonderful part of it. What you have to be careful of, though, is, <laughs> is not essentially um, becoming an archive mole and never leaving and then never writing your book because it's endless, yeah. And you do, you did, by the sounds of things, do a lot of the physical research as well. Like there's beautiful scenes sort of describing the, the gilding of the books and, and the, the painting on of egg white and the layering of gold yeah. leaf on it. Yeah. Did you do all yes. of that? Did you fold and bind and, and, yeah. and gild yourself? Yeah, this was just wonderful. Um, obviously, well, for me, not obviously, you can read about how to bind books the old-fashioned way, and I did all of that. Um, but I really wanted to do it myself so I knew what it felt like uh, and could incorporate that experience into the writing. And so I, I asked the bookbinder at the, South, um, the, the State Library of South Australia if he would not only read sections where I'd written about bookbinding, but actually teach me how to bind a book because he was apprenticed as a bookbinder when he was 15 at the State Library when there were about 55 people working there. And now he's in his 60s and he's the last bookbinder at the State Library of South Australia. Uh, and he has taught bookbinding and he was so generous with his time. And also if you go online, you can just uh, probably put my name in binding her book and he, I actually bound my own book. Um, and there's a really beautiful video of it online, um, which hides all of my errors, I have to say. <laughs> but yes, I did all of those processes, uh, which I think, I'm hoping, has enriched 
the book, but it certainly enriched my experience of writing it. Yeah. Awesome. Um, sorry, you've been waiting very patiently up there. Uh, just a question. You said that you had to give up your academic career in writing to enter into the creative process of writing books. And I was just curious around um, whether or not your experience or perhaps the discipline of academic writing and any of your methodology in writing your creative books was brought into play. Because yesterday, hearing Eleanor Catton, she talked about being a screenwriter mm. and the methodology and difference in forms of discipline of that influenced her second novel. Mm. And I just wondered if you could touch on whether the influence of your academia influenced your writing at all. Absolutely. I don't think I could have written either of these books without the work experience that I've had over the last 20, 30 years. Um, and not just as an academic. I also worked for, very, for quite a long time post uh, after I left academia as a strategic planner, actually, for councils and government. Um, and both of those jobs, the research, the, um, the sort of problem solving and strategic planning, um, work, I think, made these books possible. I couldn't have written these in my 20s. Um, I couldn't have given them the emotional truth, actually, in my 20s. That's also something that's come uh, from just growing up and, and living a life. But I, the research was easier for me than it might have been for somebody else uh, because I'd been a research academic. And the reason I say that is I talk to lots of writers who do have to do a lot of research. The thing that is most difficult is knowing when to stop. As a research academic, that's something I had to hone or I would never have written an academic paper. <laughs> um, you'd have to know where to stop. You have to know how to, um, you know, what to look for. Uh, and so, yes, it has helped enormously. Yeah. And, and down here. Um, <coughs> You mentioned that as a child, you could not use a dictionary because of your dyslexia. Mm. And I wonder how you've overcome that and whether there's a connection between the challenges you faced in childhood and your desire to write the Dictionary of Lost Words. <laughs> yeah, I sometimes think, you know, you hear about um, swimmers who've become really great swimmers because they had asthma, because someone told them they should swim because swimming was really good for their asthma. I sometimes wonder whether my interest in words and books has partly been because I found them challenging and it was a challenge I wanted to overcome. Um, so I do think there's something there, but it wasn't, it wasn't very conscious. Um, and what was the rest of your question? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know... A lot of people, um, I, te one in ten people have dyslexia, so I know that there's a whole handful of people in this room who have dyslexia or whose children or grandchildren have dyslexia. We characterise it as, you know, a learning difficulty and a lot of people think it's all about poor spelling. Well, it is. Um, people with dyslexia can't really spell very well. That's fairly universal. But there's, there's a lot more to it. There's all sorts of organisational difficulties. Um, there's other difficulties. But there are also strengths. And one of the strengths of a dyslexic brain is that it can think quite laterally. Um, a dyslexic brain can be quite a good problem solver, and I think this served me really well as a strategic planner, but it serves me really well, I think, as a novelist. Um, 
And it's about being able to make connections between things that on the surface are not connected. So that's something that people with dyslexia sometimes tend to be able to do. Um, to the point where I read somewhere that um, intelligence agencies in the United Kingdom actually hire people with dyslexia because they're good code breakers. They're good at, um, you know, helping in that area of, of um, you know, those services. So uh, I really love to, I'm, I'm really happy to talk about dyslexia because a lot of young people with dyslexia get a hard time at school, and I think it's partly because teachers and parents are always trying to correct the spelling um, instead of engaging with the creativity of what has been written. And so I'm, yeah, I'm quite strong about engage with what they were attempting to say, not with how they said it. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs>